So our scripture reading this morning, made famous by uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber and uh, what's his name, Donny Osmond, right? Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. I can tell who the theater nerds are because they're like, oh yeah, that was fantastic. When I was in youth group, and for all the youth in the room, you should be thankful that Hannah doesn't make you do these kinds of things. We did a musical production of Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. And I know you were all thinking that I was cast as the lead role, but I was not, uh, unfortunately. I was the pharaoh. So I have the hair for it. Uh, even in my, my awkward teenage years, I had great hair. And so I got to sing like Elvis uh, and, and do the role of the pharaoh. But Joseph's rise to the Egyptian court, it's a really complicated story. It's a complicated story because of who Joseph actually in real life was And because on the flip side of who he was, who he was not, Joseph should have never ended up in Egypt on Pharaoh's court. He wasn't in the right social class. He wasn't in the right economic economic class. Everything that Joseph achieved in his life ran against the cultural norms of the situations, the situations he found himself in and in the nations that he found himself forced into. His journey from being one of the younger sons of the favored wife is, is not, it's not clean cut. You can't wrap it up in an hour and 45 minutes on a stage. Joseph was one of the younger brothers, younger brother of 12 born to Jacob. He wasn't even like the cute younger kid, like the youngest child that every grandmother favors. Joseph, or Jacob, Joseph's father, he had three wives. Joseph's mother, her name was Rachel, and he or she was Jacob's favorite wife. Culturally speaking, during this time, the oldest male, the oldest son, was favored by their father and would receive whatever financial and land holdings the father had. And I say oldest male just because that's how it was at the time. Having sons ensured the economic success that you had as a man was passed on and continued in the family. So Jacob favoring one of his younger sons over the oldest sons went against the cultural norms of the time. And it created jealousy among Joseph's older brothers because Joseph should have never been favored. Sibling rivalry is a real thing. I'm the oldest of four, so I know what it's like to be the favorite. I know what it's like to be the favored one in the family. My younger siblings, Kayla, Drew, and Lucy, still give me a hard time because I'm Amama, my grandmother, her favorite. I think it's just because I live so close. But Joseph experienced that rivalry, and it led to a pivotal plot point where Joseph, his brothers take him and they're ready to throw him into a pit so that he can't escape and then he will ultimately die. They want to throw him in the pit because they would feel guilty about actually killing him. So they justify in their minds that if they just throw him in a pit, nature will run its course and their hands will be clean. But another option was presented to them, one a little more clean and one that would line their pockets a little better as well. So they sold Joseph into slavery, and off Joseph went into a foreign land against his will. 
The situation could have been dire, but Joseph prevails, as he does throughout his story. And he climbs the ladder within his master's home, Potiphar. Things were going well. He found favor with his master, or at least as much favor as he could, having been sold into slavery. But that was until Joseph found favor with Potiphar's wife. And Potiphar catches them, and Joseph is thrown into prison. A younger son, a slave, and now a prisoner. You can't typecast this type of person to be on the royal court. But Joseph had a unique set of skills that caused his brothers to hate him, but would later help him find favor with Pharaoh. Joseph, as I told the kids, could interpret dreams. He did this for his brothers, and it only fueled the poisonous sibling rivalry that they had. Here's what he said to them. Listen to this dream that I dreamed. There we were, binding sheaves in the field. Suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright, and then your sheaves, your being his brothers, gathered around and bowed down to me. His brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to have dominion over us? So they hated him even more. So they already hated him. When he tells him them this dream, that just fuels that sibling rivalry even more. But when he interpreted the dreams of Pharaoh while he was being imprisoned in Egypt, an unlikely man would rise out of the reality of this dream. Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven good years. And the seven good ears of corn are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years. As they are seven empty ears blighted by the east wind. They are seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty, great harvest, throughout all the land of Egypt. After those seven years, there will be seven years of famine. All the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and famine will consume the land. Seven years of good times, followed by seven years of famine. Famine, as we know today, are man-made and that, we could talk about that situation another time. Joseph's like, unlikely rise to power was only possible through his ability to convince Pharaoh that the unthinkable was going to happen. Egypt was a land of prosperity. So seven years of famine, that's not supposed to happen in a place like that. Famine was going to strike. Everything leading up to Joseph's new station is against the cultural norms, and against what we would think would be acceptable. We live in a culture of now. I want things now. And the same thing was like that in Egypt. Egypt was prosperous. Thursday night, I was coming home from class. I have a preaching class on Thursday nights downtown. And so I'm driving home, and I'm coming up Wilson Boulevard through uh, Virginia Square into Clarendon which you would think at 10 o'clock at night on a Thursday be pretty empty, but it wasn't. 
I couldn't help but notice the number of Uber Eats drivers and Grubhub drivers that were out on a Thursday night. The culture of now tells us that when you want something, or you convince yourself that you need something, like kebabs at 10.30 at night, that you should have it as quickly and conveniently as possible. And the convenient part of that means that someone else will go out of their way to bring it to you. We are sold convenience as something we need. But the reality is that the culture of now, Walter Brueggemann talks about this in a book called The Sab- uh, Sabbath as Resistance. The culture of now tells us that that convenience is a system of commodity. And it requires us to want more, which requires us to have more, and then we own more, and we use more, and then we eat and we drink more. It's a cycle. It's a cycle that people like me are buying into all the time. I'm convinced that I need the latest Apple product that was revealed a few weeks ago. I was going to pre-order the new Apple Watch, and then Allison reminded me that I purchased the, Apple, the last generation and returned it because I didn't like it. <laughs> but I was convinced that I needed to pre-order this thing. We're convinced that we need to have more stuff in our homes, more stuff from certain stores with certain labels because they will complete our home and make it into the life that we think that we want to have. So we buy new things, electronics, clothing, seasonal decorations every year. And then they sit in our homes going unused until we either put it to the curb with a free sign on it or we donate it to charity. On any given third Sunday of the month, in this very room, well, not right now, next month that'll happen, organizers, volunteers go through piles and piles of clothing to be distributed at community assistance. And wouldn't you know it, a third of that clothing that comes into this room still has the tags on it. Somebody purchased it, hung it in their closet, left it there for an extended period of time, maybe a not-so-extended period of time, and then they take it out, they put it in a box, and they send it here. And it makes me think that maybe that would be a one-off thing, but it happens month after month after month. The culture of now tells us that we need to have more, but our reality is different. We have more than we could ever need, and still we spend. The culture of now blinds us to the realities that we actually live in. Millennials, my generation. Yes, I'm still a millennial. I'm on the older end of it. You boomers better not be laughing because I'm going to get to you next. (laughs) Many of you have millennials living in your home, maybe still living in your basement. Maybe you've um, taught them or you've helped them get through life at some point. But millennials are saving money at rates not seen by previous generations. In 2000, from 2016 to 2017, the percentage of millennials who have zero dollars, nothing in their savings, rose from 37% to 41%. While at that same time, taking on massive amounts of college loans and credit card debt. There's a famine coming within our own culture, but the culture of now tells us not to worry about it, that you can worry about it when you're older. Millennials know that we need to save, but we know at the same time that 61% of us have at least $10,000 of credit card debt, and that 52% of us carry that debt from month to month. And while we love to talk about millennials, 
and how messed up they are and how they're still living in your basement. I get it. But boomers, you're not any better. Baby boomers, 45% of you have nothing in the bank when it comes to retirement. So save all you can, whether it's in plentiful years of the harvest or steadily throughout the entirety of our life. That makes good financial sense for the long term. But it's also about us being good stewards of what we've been entrusted with by our creator. You know, so often in church, stewardship happens once a year. It's usually a little later in the fall, and it's usually a time where people like me convince people like you that, hey, the church here is doing great stuff. We're transforming the world. We're making disciples. We are making our community the world that God has been longing for. And oh, by the way, I need you to write a check to help me do that, right? We do it every year, but so rarely do we talk about spending habits and debt as being part of that stewardship model for our faith, for our faithful living. We talk about being good stewards of creation. Every week upstairs during the prayers of the people, we pray that God would help us become better stewards of the environment. But rarely do we speak against the cultural norm of now, that if you spend it, that's okay. And if you don't have it, spend it anyways. You know, during times of prosperity, say seven years of it, it's easy to fill our minds and convince ourselves that we deserve more because, well, we've worked hard. Statistics say that working adults now are working more hours, spending more time away from their homes at work than previous generations. So yeah, we work hard. So we deserve this. We have earned this. The culture of now is different from what stewardship means. Stewardship means that I'm caring for something that's not actually mine. It's not ultimately yours. Talking about stewardship of creation makes sense because we know that the earth is not ours, it's God's. But when we talk about stewardship in the financial sense, we're acknowledging that what we've been given, that check that we get every month or every week or however we're getting it, that is a gift from God that belongs to God that's been placed in our lives by God. But the why for that placement isn't always so obvious. You know, without Joseph's attentiveness, God's inspiration that the seven years of plenty for Egypt would have been just that. It would have been a time of prosperity followed by a time of famine. Pharaoh could have used that excess grain to pad his coffers, buying more things for himself, more things for the upper echelon of Egypt. You know, John Wesley talks about this, buying things like idle expenses, those things that just sit in our homes, desires of the flesh and things that gratify our eyes, pretty, shiny things, new, sparkly things. Pharaoh could have lived in that culture, but Joseph, being God's unlikely servant on Pharaoh's court, listened, and he spoke up, and he was able to cut through the culture of now. The hard part about talking about money in church is that Christian proclamation, what Ed and myself and Jeff attempt to do every week, is that this could just be a financial seminar. But Christian proclamation requires us to connect the good news of Jesus Christ, that the grace of God is available to us all. Undeserved. How do we connect that to finances? 
So often we talk about money as being a tool instead of something given to us by God. And when we do talk about it, I need you to do your pledge card at the end of the service. But grace, God's unmerited blessing towards each of us is still extended to you regardless of your ability to successfully save all you can. God's unmerited grace is available to you even if you can't give 10% to the church and 10% into your savings. Regardless of you, if you can fulfill Wesley's prescription to save all you can or to follow Joseph's lead in preparing for times of prosperity leading to times of famine, God will not abandon you, leaving us to face these moments on our own. This isn't prosperity gospel. This isn't when times get tough, just pray harder and God will bless you with more stuff. In these situations, we have the example of the church in Corinth which was enabled by the Holy Spirit to sustain one another, caring for one another in times of hardship. We're all going to face times of prosperity. We're all going to experience God's abundant grace and blessing given to each of us. But we're all going to experience times of famine. And while hardships might seem more than we can bear, living in the culture of now, where I don't have, but I need, God's unsurmounted, unwavering grace will be available to us all. Thanks be to God. Amen.